Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. During the 2020 quarantine, many single people have experienced increased isolation. This has prevented some from finding the affection and love they so desperately crave. However, we are luckier than generations past because we have the privilege of virtually dating, FaceTiming, and instant text messages. Can you imagine a world without dating apps like Tinder or Plenty of Fish? There was a time when it wasn't so easy to find love outside of your social circle. I want to tell you a story of one couple that took long-distance dating to a sinister level. In the early 1900s, before the internet, speed dating, and blind dates, single individuals had to get creative. That's where the Lonely Hearts ads came into play that could easily be found in your local newspaper. This ad gave men and women searching for love a place to put some information about themselves and what they were looking for. If you liked what you read, you could reach out and write a letter to them expressing your interest. If the Lonely Heart writes back, you had yourself a match and a potential husband or wife. Singles looking for love have it so easy now. Imagine writing someone back then and on letter three, you find out they're trash. Today, that would have been three texts later. That's a week of time wasted versus an hour. (laughs) Maybe this was the motivation for the invention of dating apps. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into the story. In 1947, 27-year-old Martha Beck was a single mother of two and worked as a nurse at a local military hospital. Martha didn't have much confidence when it came to dating men due to her lack of self-esteem. She had been raised by an overbearing, domineering mother who ridiculed her because of her looks and her weight. She felt like she wasn't as pretty as her peers and had a heavier build, but she still desired someone to love her and help her with her kids. One day while working, Martha's co-workers told her she should put an ad in the Lonely Hearts column. Even though they said this as a joke, after thinking about it for a while, she decided to give it a shot. She didn't go into it with high expectations, but to her luck, a man named Raymond Fernandez wrote her. 33-year-old Raymond was a charming businessman in New York. He had moved from Spain to the United States a few years prior, leaving his wife and four children behind after a suspicious death of his mistress in Spain. Martha didn't know it when she started writing Raymond, but he was a scam artist who used the Lonely Hearts ads to scam wealthy women out of their money. He would contact potential victims and charm them into falling for him, all while using them to get to their assets before vanishing out of their lives. After writing to each other for two weeks, Raymond randomly asked Martha for a lock of her hair, which should have been unsettling, but Martha was giddy. He explained to her that he wanted a little piece of her and it was like a token of her love for him. Raymond had the impression that Martha was a wealthy nurse, but in reality, she had just enough money to make ends meet and live a comfortable lifestyle. Well, he sounds like a real winner. I guess catfishing isn't a new thing then. (laughs) Clearly, it's been happening for decades. The lock of hair thing would have thrown me off. Like, no, you may not have the hair I grew, you weirdo. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Pass. I'm guessing he found out she wasn't the rich target he was looking for. Well, not long after, Raymond flew to Florida to meet Martha and her children in person. During this time, Martha claimed they were sexually active and deeply in love with each other. When Raymond went back home, Martha believed that they were heading towards an engagement. She even went as far as telling her friends and co-workers about her and this man getting married. 
Once word got back to Raymond, he wrote to her to tell her he didn't know where she got that idea from, but he's not proposing to her. This caused Martha a lot of embarrassment amongst her peers and depression, which led her to attempt suicide. After the failed attempt, Raymond was made aware of it and invited her to visit him in New York. She accepted and they had a good time. Martha finally felt like she had found a man that loved her, insecurities and all. But in reality, Raymond had just one thing on his agenda. Money. When Martha returned to Florida, she was let go from her job for unknown reasons. When she shared this news with Raymond, he invited her to come back to New York to live with him. This was everything Martha could have wanted, but Raymond had one condition. Her children were not welcome to stay with him, and she would have to leave them behind. Martha was so in love and wanted this relationship so badly, she chose Raymond over keeping her kids and dropped both of them off at the Salvation Army. Wow. Mother of the year? I can't understand how someone could choose a relationship over their children. Girl, I was rooting for her until now. I don't typically judge someone else's parenting, but that also requires you to somehow parent your child. (laughs) And if they break up, she's now abandoned her kids for no reason? How did their relationship even work since he's just a scam artist? Raymond saw Martha's willingness to abandon her children as proof that she would do anything for him. So he decided to fill her in on how he collects income by scamming wealthy and vulnerable women. With rose-colored glasses on, it didn't take long before Martha offered to help him in any way she could. Raymond let her in on his scam and told her he goes by Charles Martin when meeting up with these women. He also added that his appearance in the Lonely Hearts ads wasn't exactly what he looked like in person. His hair, for example. He was balding, but wore a toupee to enhance his looks. Martha was all in and began posing as Charles' sister in an effort to add some respectability to the relationship. This was a time when women were held to certain standards, so dating a man from an ad might come off as a little scandalous, but having another woman there made the victims feel more comfortable. Her and Raymond made it their mission to go through the Lonely Hearts ads to find possible victims of their next robbery. They began robbing women from the Lonely Hearts ads all over New York, and there were also rumors that they had bragged about murdering some of these victims. Raymond thought everything could only get better having a partner like Martha, but he was unaware that she had a darker side to her. Martha suffered from anger issues, and her lack of control would eventually become their undoing. Okay. This chick really is willing to do anything to be with him. There's having a mistress on the side, then there's having your mistress pretend to be your sister. (laughs) Right? (laughs) How long can they really keep this up? Two years and many victims later, they had perfected their scam. They would target and meet up with women, invite them home to live with them, rob them, and then disappear. But Martha's anger issues began to get worse as time went on. She was extremely jealous when it came to Raymond having relationships with these victims and would do anything she could to prevent them from sleeping together. It was hard for her to separate their secret relationship from the plan they both had agreed to. One of their many victims was Myrtle Young, originally from Arkansas, who fell hard for Raymond. On August 14th of 1948, he and Myrtle were married in a small ceremony. Martha posed as Raymond's sister as usual and did everything she could to make sure that the marriage was never consummated, including sleeping in the same bed as Myrtle. This went on for several days until Myrtle protested so much that Raymond gave her a heavy dose of drugs, which caused her to fall into unconsciousness. 
With Martha's help, Raymond carried Myrtle onto a bus and sent her back to Little Rock, Arkansas, where she had to be carried off the bus by the police. They had robbed her of $4,000 before discarding her limp body on that bus. The very next day, Myrtle died in a Little Rock hospital. That's messed up. Maybe they didn't take her life right then and there, but they were responsible for her death. Absolutely. And how did no one find it suspicious that a couple brought an unconscious woman onto the bus? Good point. Shame on that bus driver and any passengers that witnessed it. Was this a wake-up call for them at least? Oh no. In the winter of 1949, the money was dwindling and neither Martha nor Raymond had real jobs. They were desperate for more victims. That's when they found a Lonely Hearts ad by 66-year-old Janet Fay. Over time, Janet began to put a lot of trust in Raymond and Martha. Janet was so in love with Raymond, who she knew as Charles and the persona that he put on, that they ended up getting engaged. Immediately after the engagement, he took Janet to his and Martha's Long Island apartment to live with them. This didn't last long, because one night, Janet went into the living room where Raymond was sleeping on the couch and tried to seduce him. They were engaged, so she didn't see anything wrong with taking their relationship to the next level. Raymond denied her advances, but when Martha saw a naked Janet on the couch with her boyfriend, she became enraged. After Janet returned to her own room, Martha crept in and smashed Janet's head with a hammer. Although this didn't kill her, the damage was done and there was no coming back from this. They had no choice but to finish what Martha had started and strangle the unexpecting Janet with a scarf until her last breath. They put Janet's body in a large trunk for two weeks until they could rent a new house. This is where they would bury her body in the basement and cover her with cement. My God, Martha has some serious jealousy issues. I mean, she's in on the scam and she still can't get past it. It's almost like she forgot what she signed up for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't Janet have anyone looking for her? Janet's family knew of Charles and knew Janet was moving to Long Island to have this fresh start in life with him. So they didn't check in with her as much, believing she was safe and being taken care of. After the couple buried her, they decided to go cash the checks Janet had previously taken out of her bank before moving in. They took it a step further by writing letters home to her family. This would be their biggest mistake because they didn't just write letters, they used a typewriter to create them. Upon receiving the letters, Janet's family became concerned because they knew that Janet had not only never owned a typewriter, but she never even learned how to use one. This was enough for them to call the police and request a welfare check on Janet. Martha and Raymond knew that if they were home when the police came, it would ruin everything. They packed up their bags and traveled 12 hours out of Long Island to Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is where they met their next victim, 28-year-old Delphine Downing. Delphine was a newly widowed woman and a single mother of a two-year-old daughter named Raynell. Delphine fell into Raymond's trap after weeks of flattering letters. When he wrote to her that he was coming for a visit and bringing his sister Martha, she happily agreed to let them stay with her. They barely escaped and moved right on to another innocent woman to scam. They couldn't even take a week-long break. Maybe if he gave Martha some couple time, she wouldn't feel the need to murder all his victims. (laughs) I don't know how much couple time it takes to hug out crazy. (laughs) What did Delphine think about them? Delphine played the role of the accommodating hostess, but she became suspicious of the so-called brother and sister relationship between Martha and Charles. Though this didn't make her want to end the relationship, 
it did cause her to step back on the marriage idea until she got to know him better. This was a problem because all they wanted was the money and this would make it harder to secure the funds and vanish. In an effort to ease her back into compliance, Raymond started having sex with Delphine, which had Martha quietly seething with rage. On February 28th of 1949, Delphine was starting to see the lies both Martha and Raymond were telling. She walked into the bathroom and noticed his toupee was sitting on the counter and she became very upset, calling him a liar and a fraud. Raymond gave her sleeping pills to calm her down, but while she was passed out, her two-year-old started crying for her mother and screaming. Martha was not prepared for this typical toddler behavior and didn't want to deal with it, so she strangled little Raynell badly, but not enough to kill her. Oh no, leave that poor baby alone. Toddlers cry and want their mommies. That is perfectly normal. If Martha couldn't handle that, she should have left, not hurt an innocent child. Why not just leave the baby and the unconscious mother so when she woke up, they would be long gone? They act like murder is their only option. She's two years old. Of course she wants her mommy. Exactly. She doesn't even know his real name. Clearly, they just enjoyed killing people. Was Raynell okay? The baby did suffer from bruising around her neck. With the physical evidence of Raynell, they knew they had once again come too far to turn back. They knew that if Delphine were to wake up and notice the bruises, she would call the police. So Raymond took out a gun and shot Delphine in her sleep. They stayed in her home a few more days with the toddler, who was still crying for her mother. Martha had had enough and took Raynell to the basement, drowning her in a bucket of water. Instead of running another home to get rid of the bodies, they decided to bury Delphine and Raynell in the basement of their own home. After a week of treating themselves to the movies and the nightlife on Delphine's dime, the couple began packing their bags to move on. They had no idea the clock was ticking while they played. Delphine's neighbors, who she was very close to, grew concerned because they hadn't seen them in a while, which was very uncommon. They called the police for a welfare check, and this time Martha and Raymond were completely caught off guard when the police showed up on Delphine's doorstep. Jeez there, cocky. They stuck around and enjoyed the spoils of their victim after murdering a mom and a toddler. They deserve everything they get. Oh, it wasn't just the police knocking on that door. It was karma. That's right. Steph will tell us more about the investigation after a short break. Hey Conjurers, this is Sham. I know my voice might sound a little different, but that's because I'm leaving this message through our Anchor app. We decided to add something special to some of our season two episodes that include you. This link will allow you to leave us a review, tell us about your favorite episode and what you love about the podcast. It's also available through downloading the Anchor app. We want to get to know our followers and where you guys are from. This link will be available on our social media and website. Now we cannot wait to hear from you guys, but until then, stay vigilant. Now let's get back to the show. There was plenty of evidence found while searching the home of Delphine, including her recent burial in the basement. But the DA on this case, Robert McComb, wanted a full confession. Both Raymond and Martha decided not to hire a lawyer and seemed resigned to their fate. The DA made a deal with them that if they were to confess, they wouldn't be transferred to New York to be charged and sentenced. This was a game changer. Because at the time, Michigan didn't have a death penalty, and New York did. They both confessed to killing Delphine, Raynell, and Janet. 
Their confessions were so graphic and full of detail, it ended up being 75 pages of information. The next day, the Lonely Hearts murder case was in the nation's headlines, and it was on the front page of every major newspaper in the country. Everyone wanted to know more about America's most dysfunctional couple. At least they admitted to it, but regardless, all the evidence points to them. I'm not a fan of the death penalty, but they shouldn't get to make any deals for the lives they took. Life in prison away from each other might be a worse punishment for these two. (laughs) Right. So I must know, what caused this guy to be so effed up? Well, Raymond was born December 17, 1914 in Hawaii and had a normal upbringing apart from his father's disappointment in Raymond's frail and sickly appearance. As a teenager, he decided to move to Spain to live and work on his uncle's farm. He had outgrown his awkward childhood appearance and had become a handsome, well-built young man. He had a calm and gentle nature and was known around the village as a really nice guy. At 20 years old, he married a local girl and they had four children together that he would later abandon. He worked in the British Merchant Marines and Intelligence during World War II in Spain. Once the job was finished, Raymond claimed he needed to travel to America to find work, so he boarded a ship to New York. While trying to go up on deck, a steel hatch fell directly on his head, fracturing his skull and leaving a severe permanent indent and likely badly damaging his frontal lobe. Everyone that knew Raymond said that after that accident, everything about him changed. So conjurers, the frontal lobe is responsible for higher cognitive functions, such as memory, emotions, impulse control, problem solving, social interaction, and motor function. Damage to it can lead to personality changes, difficulty concentrating or planning, and impulsivity. This sounds similar to Charles Lawson's head injury from our Sleigh Bells episode. Actually, there are a lot of killers who suffered a head injury at some point. There's a ton of them. So I'm guessing this is when everything went downhill. Yeah, kinda. Once he was out of the hospital for his injuries, he stole a large amount of clothing from a ship he was a passenger on for no apparent reason. When he arrived at his destination, he was immediately arrested and sent to prison for one year. During his stay in prison, his cellmate introduced him to black magic and voodoo and plunged him into the worlds of the occult. Earlier, Sham mentioned Raymond asking Martha for a lock of her hair. Well, there was a reason for that. Raymond believed that with the help of voodoo and a lock of her hair, he was able to supernaturally control these helpless women and make them fall madly in love with him. Conjurers, you know what we're about to say. (laughs) Do not practice witchcraft or voodoo if you do not have the background and skills to do so. This stuff isn't something you can just learn from a web search. Sham is absolutely right. There is a cost and consequences for abusing these practices. Religion, even occult religions, are not a game. Not at all. So where did he go after prison? Once Raymond was released from prison, he moved to Brooklyn to live with his family. His relatives were upset by his appearance, which had changed dramatically since the accident. He was mostly bald now, where before he had had an abundance of rich, dark hair. The scar from the accident was plainly visible on the top of his head, and he was ridiculed mercilessly. Raymond locked himself in his room for days at a time and complained of painful headaches. 
During this time, he began to write dozens of letters in response to Lonely Hearts ads, where, through the mail, he began to seduce vulnerable women who were looking for love. It's like an addiction for him. So what about Martha? Martha was born on May 6, 1920, in Milton, Florida, and had a troubled childhood. Martha developed a condition that caused her to physically mature faster than most children. By the age of 10, she possessed a woman's body and the sexual drive of an adult. She was already obese by that age and suffered ridicule from not only her classmates, but her domineering mother as well. Martha was sexually assaulted by her brother before she had even reached adolescence, and when she told her mother about it, she beat and blamed Martha for what had happened to her. Well, I think it's clear where she got her maternal skills from. However, it really shakes me up when a parent doesn't believe their child when they tell them that they had been violated. Right? No wonder she was desperate for love. No one had ever shown her any or even simple compassion. Her childhood sounds terrible. It's not hard to see where her lack of self-confidence started. And it continued throughout her teenage years. Martha was the focus of cruel jokes and insults which drove her further within herself. She became reclusive, withdrawn, and had virtually no friends her own age. She ran away in her late teens and began nursing school, hopping into a career where she could financially support herself. However, it wasn't so easy for her. She was constantly judged by potential places of employment and her peers. No one believed in hiring an overweight nurse, and they believed she wasn't fit enough to handle the job. Wait, what? What does someone's weight have to do with them being a good nurse? Society was so messed up back then. Did nurses have to be skinny and nice to look at? I guess they wanted eye candy nurses. Look, I have a lot of nurses in my family, and I'll tell you, it's a physical job. And having a strong and sturdy body helps. Oh, I definitely believe that. Did she eventually find a job that wasn't full of assholes? No. In a desperate attempt to start a new life, she moved to California, but nothing was different for her after the move. Martha turned to sex work to survive and would frequent the city bars where she would pick up soldiers on leave. As a result of one of these encounters, she got pregnant. The father was a soldier who was not interested in being with her. When she told the father she was pregnant, he wanted nothing to do with her or the baby, and even attempted to commit suicide by throwing himself into a nearby bay. His attempt failed, but the damage was done. Unable to convince him to marry her and deeply ashamed that a man would rather die than marry her, she returned to Florida depressed and alone. Oh my gosh, he really would rather have died? How pathetic. That's the overreaction of the century. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) I know it was a different time and men were expected to marry a woman if she got pregnant, but he could have just ignored her and walked away. That must have really messed with her head. How do you even explain this to your peers? Martha knew that she had to explain the pregnancy. She made up a story that she had married a Navy officer in California. She bought a wedding ring and wore it proudly around town. She told everyone that her husband would soon return from the Pacific and then everyone would meet him. Of course, that day would never happen, so she had to come up with an out. She arranged to have a telegram sent to herself announcing that her husband was killed in action. She went into hysterics when she received the news. The town mourned for her, and the story even appeared in the local papers. 
Martha received a great deal of sympathy for her loss, and she enjoyed the attention she had always craved. In the spring of 1944, she gave birth to her daughter and named her Willa. Shortly after giving birth to her daughter, she met a bus driver named Alfred Beck, and Martha got pregnant again. Alfred, perhaps feeling guilty about the pregnancy, reluctantly married her, but it wasn't the fairy tale love she had dreamed of. Six months later, he divorced her, and she was alone again, but now with two children to raise. Jeez. Her story is the definition of abandonment issues. Rightfully so. <laughs> it's really sad. It doesn't excuse murder by any means, but she clearly needed psychological help to deal with all of that lifelong trauma. So now we know why they both are so damaged. Take us back to the trial. The media crucified Martha in the papers, calling her fat, big Martha, unattractive, and constantly over-exaggerating her weight. The press has a long and shameful history of humiliating women for their appearance when they don't for men. And when it came to Martha, they didn't hold back. The media ran with the twisted love story angle and sensationalized every aspect of their crimes. The public made up their minds before a trial had even taken place that these two were guilty and a trial was just a formality. The public and the media began to demand the death penalty. And after several phone calls from the New York governor, the state of Michigan gave in to the pressure and took back their original deal. They waived the criminal charges for Delphine and Raynell and allowed New York to extradite Raymond and Martha to stand trial for the murder of Janet Fay. The first thing people go for is your weight. The media is ruthless, but Martha could have also avoided being in the media altogether by not murdering innocent women. <laughs> Agreed. But I'm still disgusted by the way the media, even today, crucifies women for how they look. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so now they have been transferred to New York. What's next? Their trial began on June 9th of 1994, and the prosecution began its case with a barrage of witnesses, including the medical examiner, friends of Janet, and the landlord of Janet's apartment. Investigators followed, and forensic detectives later explained the substantial physical evidence in the court. When Raymond took the stand, everything these two had previously said went out the window. They recanted their statements all together regarding the murder of Janet and Delphine, and all of the previous murders they had bragged about as well. Raymond claimed that none of it was true, and he only said those things because he thought it would help his sweetheart Martha's case. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Martha and Raymond's statements during the trial focused almost entirely on their love for each other. At the time, the media didn't help because they also focused more on the duo's love story more than the gruesome crimes they committed. Their plan was to focus on love so they might be able to claim insanity suggesting love made them do it. Laying it on thick, Martha even broke free from the officers during the trial to run over and kiss Raymond for the room, showing the world that she was head over heels for this guy. But the defendants had too much against them. The lengthy confession with all of its gruesome detail came back to haunt them many times over. As the statement was read into the record, the courtroom gasped when they heard the horrific descriptions of the murders. This girl really knows how to put on a show. Or so she thought. What could she have possibly said after all the facts were read? When Martha took the stand to tell her story, Raymond sat rigid in his chair, not knowing what to expect. Martha began with her childhood, 
reciting all the problems she suffered through as a child. She claimed that she knew Raymond was a murderer and that she helped him find lonely women to victimize. She told the court that he got quite a kick out of the photographs of some of the women who would write to him and expect him to write back. At times, Martha giggled when she recalled how easily Raymond was able to deceive his victims. When the questioning turned to Janet, Martha stated that she had blacked out during the killings and didn't have much control over her actions at that point. According to the psychiatrist that evaluated her, he believed Martha was mentally unsound and she had no idea what she was doing when she participated in the killings of these women. Later, Raymond blamed everything on Martha's jealousy and said that these deaths were all caused by her rage of seeing him with other women. The prosecutor wanted nothing to do with feeding into these two trying to claim insanity and focused on the details and graphic facts of the murders that both of them played a part in. He presented all the facts to the judge, media, and jury. This evidence caused the judge to turn to them and said the following, that kind of abnormality does not in and of itself constitute the kind of insanity which will excuse a person of criminal act. I have to agree with the judge on this one. Absolutely. This was methodically planned out over and over. It was not temporary insanity or even a crime of passion. They continued to scam and murder over and over. Right. No matter who they killed, they just kept going like they were invincible. But they weren't. After 44 days of trial and 12 and a half hours of jury deliberation, they found both Raymond and Martha guilty of first-degree murder. Due to New York's law of the death penalty being mandatory, both were sent to death row at Sing Sing Prison. This didn't stop the couple from requesting a new trial and clemency, but all requests were denied. On March 1st of 1951, Raymond and Martha were both executed by electric chair. Throughout their time in prison, they did date other people, but their love for each other remained. Raymond's famous last words were, and I quote, I want to shout it out. I love Martha, and what does the public know about love? While Martha's last words were, and I quote, My story is a love story, but only those tortured by love could know what I mean. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. I am a woman who has had a great love and always will have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feelings for Raymond. Okay, so I truly believe both were a little mentally ill in different areas. Raymond from the frontal lobe damage and Martha from her abusive childhood. However, these two plotted and planned to scheme these women out of their assets and murder the three women we know of. This isn't a love story. This is a tragedy. I think they must have gotten some kind of twisted enjoyment out of hurting these women. A horrific tragedy, for sure. Janet, Delphine, and Raynell got the public justice they deserved, but there are at least 20 women that fell victim to this evil duo's trap. Some survived and others didn't, but based on the bragging they did about murdering many women, we know there must be others in addition to these three innocent souls we share today. Who knows how many women were scammed, embarrassed, and too ashamed to speak out after they had been robbed and mistreated? Did love drive this couple to insanity? Or did these two disturbed people find each other and unleash their darkest fantasies? Love can make you do crazy things, but murder is the one thing that is inexcusable. 
NAMI offers support and education programs for families and individuals living with mental health conditions. NAMI recognizes that the key concepts of recovery, resiliency, and support are essential to improving the wellness and quality of life for all persons affected by mental illness. Find your local NAMI location at nami.org slash findsupport or call their helpline at 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 800-950-6264. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review available on Apple Podcasts. Even better, leave us a voicemail, which just might get featured on the show. You can find the link on our website. Sham, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? Today, I want to talk about rhodochrosite. This is a stone that integrates physical and spiritual energies, stimulating love and passion while energizing the soul. Rhodochrosite opens the heart, lifting depression, and it allows you to examine old wounds, suppressed feelings, and trauma from past lives. It improves self-worth and soothes emotional stress. This stone helps direct that love first towards the self for the specific purpose of emotional healing. Its vibration of self-love, forgiveness, and compassion for the child within assists in reclaiming the self one was born to be. You don't need a man. Get yourself a stone, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, though. Self-love is so important. Once you learn to love yourself, everything else will fall into place. We'll be back this Tuesday with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.